Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at rin-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. finished up a series this past week, our first series as a church. Yay! It was called I Am, Jesus in His Own Words, and we we looked at seven I Am statements of Jesus. The Gospel of John was all about identity of Jesus, so we, we walked through every one of those, and now we're moving from I Am to we are. In light of what we've learned about Jesus, we're looking at what does it mean for us to be the church. And so this next series that we're starting is called We Are the Church. And, uh, and I'm, I really am excited. I know I said that earlier, but I'm excited about what God's going to speak to us, how he's going to form us. So we're going to be spending the next five weeks looking at what the scriptures teach us about being the church. We think that's important for us as we are starting this journey together. And so uh, I'm excited about that. We're going to start out in Matthew 16, if you want to start turning there. And we're going to be looking at two instances from the life of Peter. When we find Peter at the beginning of John, his name is Simon, son of Jonah. He has a brother named Andrew. Andrew is out and about one day and he hears John the Baptist preaching and Jesus walks past this area where John the Baptist is preaching and John calls out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, Andrew hears that and thinks, okay, this Jesus guy must be important. So he begins to follow Jesus as one of his disciples. Andrew comes to his brother Simon and says, Hey, we found the Messiah. You need to come and hear this guy. You need to come meet him. And it says that when Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus, there was no introduction. Jesus looks at him and says, you are Simon, son of Jonah, but you will be called Cephas, which is is, is Aramaic. That's Jesus' native language. In Greek, that means Peter or Petros. So the very first encounter that Simon has with Jesus, Jesus changes his name. Now, there's a whole sermon about God changing people's names. I would love to give at some point, but not today. But this is the backstory of how Simon meets Jesus, and he becomes Simon Peter. Now, in Matthew 16, all right, in verse, uh, we're going we're gonna to look in verse 15. I'll give you a little bit of backstory. Jesus has been traveling around with his 12 disciples, and they're in this, this region called Philippi, and he begins to ask them, who do the people say that I am? Like, what are you hearing out there? What's the word on the street about me? His disciples say, well, you know, some are saying that you're John the Baptist, Some are saying that you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Basically, all these people are saying, you're a prophet, Jesus. And then Jesus turns it on them. And if you read with me in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 16, he says, But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. He references his 
old name, the name that he changed when he met him, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overpower it. This is an interesting moment because Peter, right, is talking with Jesus. Jesus asked this question to his 12 disciples. Peter steps up like he always does. He's the first one to talk in every group. And he says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, bingo, right? All the lights are flashing. Yes, way to go. Blessed are you. Because this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, meaning no one talked you into this. This was revealed to you by my Father, by God himself. And then he references Peter again. Now, in the Greek, that, that would be Petrus, which would be like a stone. Picture having a rock in your hand. Petrus would be stone or rock. And then he says, upon this rock, Petra, if y'all remember the 80s Christian rock band called Petra, anyone? Anyone remember? Thank you, Jordan. Yes, we have one Petra reference acknowledged. I just had to throw that in there because it's, you got to Google Petra later. It's, it's fantastic 80s, okay? Don't do it right now. Some of you are looking at your phones, okay? Later, all right? Upon this Petra, this would be a large rock, a big rock, I will build my Church. Now, this is the first time that the word church is mentioned in the scriptures in the New Testament. The very first time Jesus himself uses the word church. And it's interesting that he says, upon this Petra, because some think that Jesus was saying he's going to build his church upon the apostle Peter. That's not what he's saying here. Petra, stone, would be like a little rock. Petra would be a big rock. And upon the big rock, that big rock is this confession. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Upon that rock, Jesus would begin to build the church. Now, Anytime you see the word church in the New Testament, that's really a, a transliteration of a German word. Okay, it's not found in the, the, the old languages. So in, in Greek, this would be the word ekklesia. You've probably heard the name ekklesia. There's a church in Houston called ekklesia. What that would be, it was like a secular word. It wasn't a, a, a Christian word. And it was a gathering, an assembly, a, a gathering of citizens. So if a, if a king sent a herald into a city, he would gather the citizens and they would call that assembly ecclesia. This is the ecclesia. So when Jesus says, I will build my gathering, he's talking about the church is the assembling or the gathering of his people, a gathering of citizens. I was on vacation last year with my family and we had rented a car and we're driving around. And uh, as we're driving around, I pull up behind another vehicle and I saw this symbol on the back of a car. 
And I'm used to seeing like the igthus, right? The little fish, the Christian fish that you see sometimes. I've seen the, the fish with legs and it's the, 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 the Darwinian fish thing. You've probably seen that one before. I've seen one that is like an alien ship. So it looks like the fish shape with a little alien thing on there. And this one though had that same little fish shape but with no tail. And it had eight squiggly little little legs coming off and two eyes popping out. And in the middle, it said FSM. I was like, what is FSM? And so I Google on my phone FSM, and it turns out this was the symbol for the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Anyone ever heard of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster? Have, I, I, I thought you would have heard of it before, yeah. The Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, they have a Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster Bible. There's a Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster website. You could probably give a charitable donation to the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. And it's a social movement that intends to take a light-hearted view of religion. And they exist to oppose the teaching of creationism and intelligent design in schools. So it's a religion that is built to oppose the teaching of religion in schools. It's an anti-religion religion. It's a little bit humorous, right? It's a little bit shocking. But in our cultural moment right now, in the, um, in the thought space that you and I traffic in every day, there's an idea going around or that has been going around for quite some time, that all gods or God religions, that all of these things are man-made. I, I was taught this as a university student at Texas State University, that in philosophy class, that all these things are man-made. Like over the thousands of years, people didn't know how to cope with the uncertainties of life and the weaknesses that we all feel. And so they made up God and they made up religion and they made up church and all these things as man-made inventions. Ever heard that before, right? We've all heard that line of reasoning before. So if you believe that, hey, why not make your own religion, right? We could, the church of the flying spaghetti monster, we can have our own Bible, we can have our own website, right? You can make your own religion if it's all man-made. And here's the thing, they're almost right. They're almost right. I mean, think about it. The the, the Roman, Greek gods, Zeus, right? Remember all those gods, Aphrodite? Were those man-made? Yeah, yeah, I think so. How about those little fertility gods that people would have and they would have in their home so they could make sure that they had children? Do you think those were man-made? Yeah, yeah, I do or the, um, the god of war, or the gods that people would um, erect these idols and they would sacrifice their children. Do you think that was man-made? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely think that was man-made. When someone like 
Joseph Smith goes off into the woods and says that an angel appears to him and tells him that there's these golden tablets buried in a hill next to his house. And with those tablets are these special stones that he could see through. And if, if he could just look at those stones and those tablets, he could write this book of, called the Book of Mormon. And then everything in that book, all of, every name, place, reference, none of those things have any historical or archeological evidence. Do you think that that is man-made? I might offend someone, but yeah, I do. I think that's man-made. You see, I think this Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster idea is almost true. It's, it's almost true. Yet into history, steps the man, Jesus Christ. His mother had never been with a man before. She conceives a child. She says the Holy Spirit visits her and she has a child growing inside of her. There's angels that begin to visit shepherds nearby where Jesus is being born. There's this astrological anomaly of a star and these people travel from all across the, the world to find out where this star is pointing to and these magi come and visit Jesus as a child and they bring gifts of, of frankincense and incense and myrrh. Herod heard about this because of the Magi coming, and he has every child that is two years old or younger killed, every male child killed, because he heard that a new king had been born. And so an angel appears to Jesus' father, Joseph, and says, flee to Egypt. And so he takes Jesus to Egypt away from this area so that Jesus would survive. Jesus grows, and he's an ordinary kid, yet he's extraordinary in that he has this love for God. He always chooses the right thing. It says that he would wander away from his parents, and they would find him in the temple, talking with the rabbis and, and reasoning with them, learning as a child. He had this remarkable interest and understanding of God's word. When he was a young man, his mom took him to a wedding, and you know the story, right? They run out of wine at the wedding, and she says, come on, you need to help us out. And so he's like, all right, you got to make mom happy. And so he, he takes the water, and he has big, three big uh, vats of water, and he turns them into wine. All the guests say, what is this? You've saved the best wine for last. Jesus begins to preach and teach, and he teaches in a way that no one had ever seen before. There was an authority about him that was just remarkable, unlike all the other religious leaders of their day. And not only did he teach with authority, but whole towns would bring their sick to him, and he would heal every last one of them. He would make the blind man see and the deaf man hear and the lame man walk and he would take the leper and he would make their skin turn clear again. His friend Lazarus dies. We talked about that a few weeks ago. He's four days dead and Jesus calls out, Lazarus come out, and Lazarus comes out of the tomb. You see, Jesus not only taught with authority, not only was he perfect, but he had real power real power. And he begins to tell his disciples, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer at the hands of these religious leaders, and they're going to crucify me, but don't let your hearts be troubled. 
It's going to be okay. I will rise again. And he begins to predict his own death. And guess what? He suffers at the hands of religious leaders and is crucified on a cross. And three days later, later, he comes out of that tomb. He appears to his closest followers, to those 12 and to his closest friends, and then to 500 other people. And those people begin to tell the stories, and they write this book for us. And guess what? The, 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 the archaeologists that, that study this book keep finding things that confirm the accounts of the names and the places of the people that are found in this book. In fact, there's not one find so far that has contradicted a historical claim of the Bible, not one single find. So that resurrected Jesus that taught with authority, who healed the sick, who raised the dead, and then himself rose from the dead three days later, that Jesus says right here, I will build my church. Is this man-made? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Our God is not a man-made God. He's not our idea. In fact, quite the opposite is true. We were his idea. And here's my point for us, my big point for this morning, and I think it's the, the foundation of everything that we're going to talk about together, is that the church is and always was God's idea. The church is God's idea. It's not my idea. It's not theologians' idea. It's not people from thousands of years ago idea. This was always Jesus' intention. He was going to build his church. What that means for us today is that when we come together like this, this is sacred ground. We're taking part of something that God has intended from the beginning of creation to build a church for his name and for his glory. And that's what we're a part of this morning. And so, is this man-made? No, 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 no. This was always God's idea. I want to look at this, this other part of Peter's life now in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is, um, this is a 30-year-older Peter. 30 years have gone by since he has this encounter with Jesus where he makes this confession. And he says, you are Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church. And now he's a seasoned saint. He's a leader in the church of Jerusalem, and this persecution has broken out, and all these believers have been scattered over the Gentile lands, and Peter writes a letter to all of these believers. We find it in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you want to go there, I want to read this with us. Um, but before we read this, if you were just to scan the, the chapter before this, you're going to find that he begins, begins to talk about loving one another with like this brotherly love. In fact, he says the, the term love one another constantly because you have been born again through the living and enduring word, and that word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Going back to that confession, that Petra upon which Jesus was going to build his church. He says, look, look, you've been born again through that confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, and now here's what God's doing to bring us together. 
Chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word. Remember, he talks about being born again, right? So newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Side note, you don't have to train a child to want milk, do you? Mamas, you know this. If you've had a child, you don't have to train them to want that milk. They want that bottle, right? This is what the word of God is for us. It is like the pure spiritual milk. If you tasted that the Lord is good. Verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, he quotes from Psalms, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. Verse 8, and he quotes back again from Isaiah, a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. So let's just think about this. Let's connect these dots uh, from Peter's life. Andrew brings him his brother. Simon, son of Jonah, you'll be called Petrus. You'll be called Peter. Who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Ah, bingo. Yes, Simon, son of Jonah. You will be called Peter. And upon this Petra, I will build my church. And now he's saying, look, you've been born again because of this confession, and here's what God's doing. He's going to grow you up, and then he's going to grow you together. You see, we come to the Lord individually. I can't come to Jesus for you, and, and you can't come to Jesus for me. This is something that each one of us has to individually make a decision, a choice inside of our own heart, right? It's not revealed to us by flesh and blood. It's something that the Father reveals to us. And when that happens, he begins to bring us together. You see, when we are born again, we're born into a new family. We are like that if you've, if, you've, uh, if you've ever built something, right, and, and you know, uh, I'm a DIY guy, so I, I do build some things, and I know the value of corners. I've made some cabinetry and things in my day, and uh, some of them have not been what they call square, right? You, you begin to, like, put it on a level thing, you're like, oh, gosh, this is wrong. It's because the corner was 
wrong. You see, that cornerstone in a, in a building would have been the most valuable, precious stone because that would become the standard by which everything else would be built. He's saying, you've been given Jesus as a standard, and now God's building you around him, this precious cornerstone. See, the same gospel that makes you right with God is the same gospel that makes us into a church. It's the very same thing. I, uh, I, I made a, a diagram for us this morning, and um, I just wanted to kind of give you something visual to talk about some of the big ideas of this passage, and we're going to come back to this later in another week, and I want to kind of dr- dr- drill into some of the other metaphors that Peter used, but I wanted to give us something visual to help us understand how this big concept works. So you see this Venn diagram, it's, it's three circles, and this top circle, is, it says God. This represents God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. This bottom right would be the, the individual. It's me, it's you. Put yourself in that bottom right circle. And then that bottom left is the church, right? It's the, the people, the gathering, the ecclesia of God. And you can see in this diagram how these things begin to, to overlap and interplay with one another. If you were to look at that God circle at the top right and then that me circle at the bottom right, and you see this area where they overlap, but there's no church involved. See, this would be a, a, an individualistic understanding of Christianity. And I think this has become so, um, so easy for us to have a lone ranger mentality. It's like, hey, just give me my Bible, give me Jesus, and I'm good, right? Right now, I can get in my truck and I can download and stream the best worship songs put out on planet Earth right now. I could stream the best preaching from across the globe by myself. And we can think, ah, oh, this is so sweet, just, just me and Jesus, right? This individualistic, just me and the Lord. The problem is that Jesus said he's going to build a church, which is bigger than just you and Jesus. And the other problem is that when you begin to read the Bible, it's full of these things about loving one another and caring for one another and bearing one another's burdens and all these one another's that are only lived out and community. You see, when we begin to really look closely, we find that this understanding of an individualistic mentality is absolutely incompatible with what the Bible calls true Christianity. This is less than what God has intended for you. Then if you were to take that, that me circle and the church circle and that section where there's no God, this would be the me plus church minus God section. Now, this would be like a religious identity. And I think this, again, it's so easy for us, especially in the South and the Bible Belt. Maybe you grew up Catholic or you grew up um, Methodist or, or Lutheran or Baptist or whatever your family was. And, and you went to church, maybe on occasion, your family talked about the Bible. Maybe you prayed for the meal at Thanksgiving or Christmas. You, you had Christian tradition in your home. But there's never a moment where God and you connected. Like, the, God never came into your heart. You have a religious identity. You're, you're resting on the faith of your family. 
but God has never come into your heart. Let me tell you, you are absolutely living less than what God has intended for you. And then we see this, this God circle and the church circle. And, and I think of this uh, as like this transcendent high church. I mean, think of the big, beautiful cathedrals. You walk in and there's just like everyone gets quiet because there's a sense of holiness. Right? There's a hush when you walk into the room. And there's this idea that God is so holy and the church is so holy. And all that is so far removed from me. And maybe I visit on occasion and my conscience is pricked a little bit. But if I'm honest, in my real life, God and church really have nothing to do with me. We have God and church, but man, I'm not really a part of that. See, that transcendent type of mentality of God and church being so far removed from us, that is absolutely less than what God has intended for us as his church. But then we get into that, that middle zone where we begin to see where our life and our identity overlaps this identity of the church and what God is doing. And we get into what I call the sweet spot. This is what the Bible calls true Christianity. This is where I begin to see how my walk with God personally impacts you. And your walk with God personally begins to impact me. We begin to live life in community, loving one another, caring for one another. We begin to join together in mission, actively engaging with one another in the church. It is the sweet spot. And let me tell you, this right here is the stuff that movements are made of. This is what movements are made of. In um, the beginning of the early church, if you were to read the uh, ascension of Jesus in the beginning of Acts, you're going to find that when he ascended, there were only 120 or so Christians and it gathered in in an upper room. If you fast forward history, about 300 years later, when Constantine comes into power, he legalizes Christianity. And some people believe he did that because Christianity had grown so rapidly that he couldn't contain it. So he had to adopt it. Because at that point, they went from 120 to 20 plus million Christians in 300 years. Amazing. This Sunday, today is St. Patrick's Day. I don't know if you knew that. Some of you have green on. Way to go. You wore your green on St. Patrick's Day. Um, This this St. Patrick was a missionary. We think St. Patrick's Day is all about green beer. It's not all about green beer. He was actually a missionary to Ireland. In fact, the story goes that St. Patrick was, um, was captured by some Irish slave traders when he was 16 years old. He was taken to Ireland. He was forced to work for six years in Ireland. And as he was sitting there watching their sheep, he would begin to pray and to contemplate God. And that's where he began to know the Lord. And one day as he was praying and watching the sheep, he hears a voice tell him, your ship is ready, you're about to go home. And so he flees his master and he goes 200 miles to a port city. He finds a ship and a captain talks him in to letting him on board and he gets to go home. 
When he got there, his heart had been so uh, turned by God while he was watching those sheep that he begins to learn about Christianity, the church, and he gets very involved in his church. And one day he has a vision of people from Ireland begging him to come back. And so St. Patrick tells his church leaders, and they sent him out as a missionary back to Ireland. And he started these missional monastic communities where they would bring people from a village into a community of believers that were learning about God. You see the overlap? This little movement would begin to multiply and spread. And if you've ever heard of Celtic Christianity, it absolutely changed Ireland. In fact, it civilized Ireland. This was a move of God where we saw the dynamics of a church where people were relating to God and to one another in this incredible way. Closer to us in history, in in 1949, when Mao um, closed down China, he imprisoned some of the pastors, he he, uh, confiscated their properties, he kicked out all the missionaries out of China, and he made all the churches that existed either they would be shut down or they would become um, state-run churches. He was thinking, now this will put the brakes on Christianity, right? This will stomp this thing out if I do this. Well, today, sorry, in 1949, there were 4 million Christians, about 1 million Protestant and 3 million Catholics. Today, there are 100 million Christians. Did you know that China, in the next two decades, is on track to become the most Christianized nation on planet Earth? Why? Because of this. When people begin to see their walk with God and their absolute dependence on one another, that dynamic releases movement-making power. And friends, that's what we're here for. We want to see our city radically changed. We want to see kids that are being orphaned right now brought into homes. We want to see people whose marriages are falling apart restored. We want to see people who are absolutely struggling in poverty find their way up in life. We want to see God do miraculous things. And that's not about doing a bunch of social stuff. It's about spreading the gospel of Jesus and living like the real church described in scriptures. It was always God's idea. It was never ours. And here's the cool thing. When you re-embrace God's idea, God's power begins to flow. And this is what I'm calling us to as a church, to come to this place of kingdom life where we begin to see how my walk with God and your walk with God come together in this thing called church. How we live that out here is that we live that out in two ways. First is this gathering. We come together like this on Sundays to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be edified, to be inspired, to be taught in the word. And then we gather in homes throughout the week. The way that, the, what we call that is our house church. 
Okay, the reason we call it that is because when we gather in the home, we're still a gathering, we're still an assembly, an ecclesia of God's people. And so it's important for us that we gather there as well, that we begin to love one another and pray for one another, to know one another. So I want to encourage you to join us as we gather both here and in a home. I want to close with this. Um, have you ever gone, uh, maybe you've gone to a concert or, or a busy restaurant, and you're meeting some friends, right? Maybe you're meeting some family, and, and you go into a place full of people, and you're just scanning the room looking for your people. You see, the church is your people, we just read that you, you, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. I want you to find your people in the church. Let me pray for us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.